We wanted to be the biggest band in the world. It's like my life flashing in front of me. It's pure inspiration. The Hysteria record was the album that we've always been wanting to make ever since we formed the band. When we first got together to follow up Pyromania, which is basically what it was, it wasn't Hysteria at the time, it was just going to be the next album. We hadn't got a clue what we were doing, to be honest. You know, we were, you got to remember that it was a year since the last album came out. We spent a year on the road. We literally finished in Bangkok in like the second week of February, 1984, and flew straight to Dublin Island. We first started writing songs for the Hysteria album with Mutt Lang in, in Dublin. Uh, and a lot of them were quite, pretty much finished. But we knew at that point that Mutt was not going to produce the album, which is why we, uh, we thought that Jim Steinman might be a good idea. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, Frank. It up. the end of the month which means it's Def Leppard time and we are going to be exploring everything hysteria on this episode of the Grown Up Rock podcast Hollywood holy crap this album was absolutely freaking ridiculously mammoth are you ready for tonight I am ready for tonight I remember it being mammothly huge after listening to the record for the last I don't know 2 3 weeks over and over and over I have some opinions. Yeah, we're going to get into those because we definitely got opinions about this record, you and I both. So just like all the other episodes, we got to invite along a special guest. And for this episode, we found somebody who actually liked this record. And that's our old buddy from the Potter and Hell podcast, Steve Wright. What's going on, Wrighty? Not a whole hell of a lot. Uh, hello, gentlemen. And uh, thanks for the invite. Well, it was less of an invite and more of a, I love this album, please let me do it type thing. And we were like, okay, well, come on along for the ride. So here you are. Well, that that's not entirely accurate. <laughs> just just so you know, because uh, it was uh, a, a charity move on, on your part because you boned me last year with the Van Halen. And uh, that is correct. So, Righty, what's your history with this album in particular? Well, this came out the year after I graduated high school, and I'd been a Def Leppard fan since uh, High and Dry. Pyromania took off when this came out. It just like it went nuts. And um, my girlfriend at the time, uh, we listened to this constantly. It was uh, probably two or three tapes of this were actually worn out in the car just from playing it over and over again. So at this point, you're already a Def Leppard fan. Then you came in with High and Dry or with Pyromania. Where did you come into the band? No, I came into the band at High and Dry. Okay. I've told the story on our podcast many times. Uh, on weekends, uh, me and my two buddies, before we were able to drive, we'd take the bus every Saturday, and we'd each buy a different album. You know, we'd tape them for each other and stuff, and Def Leppard was one of the ones that my buddy Rob got. You know, it was one that we heard the name before, saw the cover, got it. So we loved it and loved Pyromania, and then uh, Hysteria came out, so it was just a natural progression. Okay, right on. And did you happen to see this tour in the round? 
Yes, I did. I saw them. Actually, I, I printed the set list out. I saw them July 27th, 1988 at the Allentown Fairgrounds. This was, I, I want to say, I think I believe they were doing it in the round at that time. But the Allentown Fairgrounds is just uh, in like a shed type stage back in, you know, back in the day at, at, a, at a fairground. So it was just a regular stage. And I remember getting there. Um, there's a, an amusement park, maybe like five or six miles from the from the fairgrounds. So we went to the amusement park for the day. We got there, we parked, and the line went on the building and down the whole parking lot. When we got there, I'm like, this sucks. I, I, I'm not waiting in this line. So I literally, I said, come on. If we walked the line, I saw people I knew, jumped in with them. Five minutes later, we were in, and they oversold it. There were probably 4,000 people outside of the out of the advanced center there. It was insane the amount of people that were there. Wow. Sonny, how about you? What was your experience or your history with this album in particular? Yeah, so this is my first Def Leppard album because I got in after Pyromania, right? So you've seen it on MTV and all that. I've got this on cassette. I got it on LP. I got it on long box CD. I've got the remastered gold CD thingy. <laughs> um, so I am bought four of these 12 million sold in the U.S. for sure. Um, I did see them in concert. I saw them. Before the album hit number one, so I saw him at the Arco Arena on November 27th, 87, and then saw him at the Cow Palace in November 28th, 87. Tesla opened those shows. And then I saw him four days after they hit number one in 88. So I saw him in uh, August 17th of 88 at the Shoreline Amphitheater, and Europe was opening. By, by that time, they're out of the round, though. Because the amphitheater is a straight-ahead shot. The other two shows that you saw him at were in the round, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Arco show was outstanding. Okay. So my history with Def Leppard or with this album in particular is basically, I mean, I was a huge Def Leppard fan from Pyromania on. I had already gone back and gotten all the catalog after Pyromania. So I'm a crazy fan at this point, and I waited four years for this record. Obviously, as soon as this record came out, I went and got it. Back then, you didn't you didn't have the internet or anything. So you're reading articles and uh, finding out what's going on with the band. This tour in particular sold out three nights at the Omni in Atlanta. It was a short period of time after I moved to Atlanta. They sold out October 7th, 8th and 9th, 1988. If memory serves me, I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but basically I think I ended up going to the second night of this three night stand. I didn't go to any more, but that one night and Tesla opened all three nights uh, for us as well. The set list here, and this is probably pretty much the standard set list for this tour. So I'm guessing that it was the same for your guys show, but they opened with stage fright. They played rock, rock till you drop women too late for love hysteria, guitar solo, gods of war, Die Hard the Hunter, Bringing on the Heartbreak, Foolin', Animal, Pour Some Sugar on Me, Rock of Ages, and then they came back out and did an encore of Love Bites and Photograph. So in looking at this set list, nothing from the first album and only Bringing on the Heartbreak from High and Dry. The rest was pretty much all Pyromania. And then they played, what, one, two, three four, five, six songs from the new album on this uh, this tour. So pretty much Pyromania and Hysteria, and that was it uh, from this uh, set list. Do you guys uh, recollect roughly the same? 
Yeah, I, I printed out the set list for my show, and it's the same exact set list. And if you look at that, Armageddon it isn't even in the set list yet. No. Sonny? Yeah, the reason Armageddon's not in the set list yet is because it doesn't release as a single until right. November 88. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the single releases afterwards. And you got three sold-out nights at the Omni because they're already number one by this point. So this was like the... The appetite record, man, it started really slow and had this build because of the way they released the singles. Yeah. My memory of this particular concert was was great. I want to say that might be the first concert I ever saw that was in the round. So it was a new venture for me as a rock fan. We had nosebleed seats, I think, but you know, it was still great. I remember Tesla opening up with Coming At You Live, and they were amazing from what I remember. And uh, this show uh, was amazing. So, yeah, I mean, wall-to-wall women at this concert uh, and probably every Def Leppard concert around that period of time. So uh, good experience for sure. We're going to get into much more with this album because this album, I mean, just, there's an amazing amount of information with this record. Uh, and I can't assume that everybody knows the story with this record. So we're going to cover a lot of it in this conversation. Then we'll go track by track through everything. But before we do that, we got to do this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. So tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight, I'm going to turn the mic over to Mr. Steve O'Rido, and he's going to tell you about tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight, because typically, unless you're an artist on this show doing one of these album reviews, we really don't do new music spotlights, but Steve-O wanted to do one, so guess what? He gets to do one. All right. Thank you, my friend. Uh, this week's Crank It Up Spotlight is a song called Strong as Steel by New Horizon.
right. Hope you guys enjoyed that. The, like I said, the band is New Horizon. The song is Strong as Steel, and it's from the Gate of the Gods album. I really like the song. I don't know what you guys thought of it, yeah, but it's got heavy guitars, good keyboard accents. The production is really good on the whole album. Drums are good. Uh, the vocals are really cool. I like the solo. Very melodic at the beginning, then it starts to shred. And a great heavy song. I really like the album as well. So a little information about New Horizon. New Horizon is the new sort of power metal band from Eric Gronwall and Jonah T. Eric, of course, was in Heat at one point in time. He's the former lead singer. And Jonah T is currently the keyboard player in Heat. And uh, so he went off to venture into this power metal territory. The album for me is kind of okay, but to be honest, power metal's not really my thing. The song is stronger than Steel. Okay, righty, let me just get that straight. <laughs> but the song is, uh, this is one of the songs I like on the record because it's sort of similar to like uh, maybe something that Judas Priest would do off of uh, uh, this last album that they put out. It's, it's in that wheelhouse. It's not quite as power medley as some of the rest of the record. There's probably three or four songs that I really like off this record. The rest is kind of okay to me. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Eric singing. He's a great singer. Yeah, I mean, this song I like. It's one of the few that I do like off this record. Sonny? I love you, Eric, and I love you, Jonah, but I don't love any of the songs off this record. Uh, just the minute some of my favorites go into musical landscape that I don't like, I can't go there with them. And, you know, this is similar to some of the stuff that Jeff does with some of the bands that he works with. It's like once they go there, like I can't follow. I just I don't like any of it. There you go. That's a new horizon. Righty, you like power metal a little bit more than me. So it's not a real big surprise that you might like this record. And that's OK. It's all good. Good stuff. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. So let's get into tonight's discussion. Of course, tonight we're talking all about Hysteria. This is the fourth album released from the band Def Leppard. Last album they put out was Pyromania before that. Pyromania ended up selling 10 million records. And so they had a lot to prove with this record. And of course, it didn't come easy for them. They certainly didn't put it out a year later. It ended up being, what, four or five years later before they ended up putting this record out. Let's give some basic facts about this record. Released August 3rd, 1987, the album was recorded, get this, from February of 84 through January of 87. The album was recorded at Wise Lord Studios in Dublin, Ireland, and Des Dames Studios in Paris, France. The length of the album is 6232. The album was, well, it ended up being produced by Mutt Lang, but certainly didn't start out that way. There's so much information with this record. This record was a mess from almost the inception of it. It ended up, it was certified 12 times platinum in 2009. The album currently sits as the 51st best-selling album of all time in the U.S. It spent 96 weeks in the U.S. Top 40, a record for the 1980s. It ties with Born in the USA. The album has sold more than 20 million copies worldwide, and seven singles were released. Now, I saw a thing on this record 
that said they basically spent $5 million in recording this album, which is a shitload of money in the 80s, and that they had to sell at least 5 million records to even break even with what they owed the record company. Can you imagine being in this band, just coming off all the success in the world with Pyromania, finally getting money in your pockets, and getting the bill for recording this album that basically says you owe the company $5 million dollars Can you imagine the pressure that must have been on these guys' shoulders? I mean, if this album is a failure, they're done as a band. You either don't ever hear of Def Leppard again, or you see Def Leppard on the Monsters of Rock cruise, just like Faster Pussycat. (laughs) I mean, is that that crazy or what? What do you think about that, Sonny? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're in the studio recording the songs. You got to count on Mutt knows what he's doing. You know, these guys, they're professionals, obviously. They're still young. They probably don't realize the whole $5 million bill thing. They figure they'll just play live until it pays itself off. I can tell you where it probably hit home is when the first single didn't do well. That's when people started freaking. And when the the second single didn't do that great, it's like, uh uh-oh, we are in major trouble. So let's talk a little bit about some of the issues with this record. So you guys probably both know that originally they went after Jim Steinman to produce this record. Jim Steinman is the guy that wrote Bad Out of Hell for Meatloaf, right? You know that, Steve, correct? Yes. Yep. So I have to wonder why the hell? (laughs) I mean, I don't I don't know what anybody was thinking when they went after Jim Steinman originally. So here's the story. Originally Mutt Lang was slated to produce the record, just like the past two Def Leppard records. And why would you change what's already working? Mutt Lang comes in, does pre-production with the band. They start writing tunes for the record. Everything is going as it should in pre-production for this album. And then Mutt Lang says, Hey guys, I'm burned out. I can't do this record, right? And he bails on Def Leppard, not to do another project, but just to take time off. So that's when they get the idea to go after Jim Steinman. And Joe Elliott's been noted as saying that everybody gave their blessing. Even Mutt Lang said, yeah, Jim Steinman, that's a good person to go after. I mean, you know this story, right, Sonny? Yeah, and then uh, I think it was just a couple of weeks and they hated Jim immediately. Yeah, so take a listen to what Joe Elliott had to say about Jim Steinman right here. It wasn't just the disastrous sort of recording process with Jim, but it was also his extravagance and his his extracurricular stuff outside of the studio that was driving you mad as well, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, we're from Yorkshire, you know. Um, When a guy says, I hate my hotel carpet... (laughs) (laughs) I mean... you can imagine the five of us like going, what? <laughs> I, I want to change the carpet in my hotel room. I don't like it. Okay, well, then you can do that if you want, but we ain't paying for it. You know, it was, it was stuff like that. And he was working some other meatloaf records. So he was up all night writing his own stuff and then coming to work with us six hours late. And we'd be twiddling our thumbs waiting for this guy to turn up and he'd walk in like the walking dead, you know. And the, it just, it, it, 
it was a cash cow for him. I think he saw it as like, we've done six million records, previous album, this, this is easy money or whatever, I don't know. But we just didn't work well as a team. It just wasn't working. So we got rid of him. We got a bunch of backing tracks down, but we just didn't like the way they sounded. It wasn't us. It was like taking us live. And we were trying to create stuff that we'd struggle to replicate live later on, but we wanted to make records like Queen, not like, you know, some bog-standard rock band. And so if you took the theory of... You wouldn't write Bohemian Rhapsody if you were just worried about how you're going to play it live, because how the hell do you play it live? We wanted to create music that we'd never made before, and hopefully nobody else had ever heard it in that style before. And he, we weren't going to get that with him. He just wanted to capture us live and make us sound like ACDC or whoever was popular at the time. And that wasn't going to work for us, so we got rid of him after about six weeks. All right. <laughs> so Jim Steinman is a little bit of an eccentric character. And based on what Joe Elliott said in that interview, uh, he had some quirks about him and he just wanted them to play live, but that's not the record that they wanted to make. I would have been fine. In fact, I would have enjoyed Def Leppard making Pyromania too. What about you, Steve? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's fine. I think it's a comfort thing. They worked with with Mutt Lang on the last on the last two albums, and I, I think whoever they brought in was going to kind of get a little, maybe not static, but just a little, you know, pushback from from anyone else. And apparently, at one time, they were trying to get other people, and they tried to get Dead Templeman. He just threw out like a, he didn't want to do it, so he just threw out a ridiculous amount to be paid for it, and they said no. But I could see where there would be pushback with them being used to Mutt Lang in in his his recording style. And I'm glad that they didn't uh, put out Pyromania 2 for, for myself. But I would have, I don't know, man. I I loved Pyromania so much that I was hoping for Pyromania 2. I mean, honestly, if they, if they had put out a record that had different songs, but still in that same vein, maybe they wouldn't have become the mega band that they did to the point of where they're still playing stadiums today but I still have to think that they would have been pretty damn successful. What about you, Sonny? Initially, I didn't want Pyromania 2. I will tell you today at age 52, I think I'm 52, I would rather have Pyromania 2. <laughs> now, I got a feeling that there are some thoughts. They knew what was happening that three or four years. I mean, think about it. Between 84 and 87, how much music changed? So they probably were also looking at, okay, well, this new wave of British heavy metal is dead, and we were coming in at the tail end of that. And look at what's happening with these ballads and some of the people and Bon Jovi, and look at, oh, my God, like they got women all over the place. We're going to go have to do like 15 photographs, and we're probably going to have to take an edge off of it. Otherwise, we are not going to get those women come to our shows. So there's somebody smart noticing change happening. Well, I think it was kind of, I mean, you mentioned the timing of it all, right? So this was sort of the perfect storm, in my opinion. And in fact, had they not had all these issues like Rick Allen's arm and all the delays, I think they said, well, they said, okay, so they had many different delays, right? Rick Allen obviously was in the car wreck, lost his arm. That's one major delay. 
Uh, Joe Elliott gets the mumps at some point. That's another delay. Uh, Mutt Lang was going to produce the record bowed out. They tried Jim Steinman. That didn't work. That's another delay. So they had delay upon delay upon delay upon delay, which ended up delaying the record somewhere in the neighborhood of four, four years, right? So if they'd have done this album like a normal record and say they started recording it in 84 and they were done with it in late 84 and they put the album out in 85, then I think you probably would have gotten Pyromania too. Because of all the delays, they have all these different things happening with technology, right? The entry of CDs, the entry of digital recording versus analog recording, all these different things, these new tools that are available to them in the studio start becoming available. The inventions and uh, introduction of MIDI computers, things like that all start happening around this time frame, 86, 87, and they start using some of these tools as is all the music that's changing around, right? The new wave of British heavy metal is pretty much gone at this point. You have all these pop bands uh, like the Thompson Twins and Madonna and Prince and all these different pop music icons that are really at their peak in the mid to late 80s. So all this stuff is happening. Michael Jackson, they said numerous times in interviews that they wanted to make a rock and roll thriller album, right? They wanted thriller with guitars. We wanted to make a rock version of Thriller that had seven singles on it and, and that, that would, um, you know, please every genre of music. We realised the type of album that we'd sort of committed to is, you know, there's no going back. Yeah, a lot of it was groundbreaking, stuff that would, our recording techniques, nobody had ever really done before. Uh, but it was creating a sound that nobody had heard before. And, and, and to get through that process, sometimes you could spend three or four days just solely on one little thing to realize that's not the right way to go. They wanted to make a heavy metal thriller because Mutt was pissed off they never got to number one with Pyromania. But they waited so long, now they had to compete with Bad. Yeah, but that that was that was a less of a competition than it was with Thriller. Steve, I mean, it's crazy the amount of challenges, but it all added to a perfect storm of this record, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you hit on a good thing too with the with the pop music. I mean, you have the Duran Duran. I think they're pretty much the pop version of Def Leppard. And with all the technology change and everything, look at the video for women. That was one of the first, you know, if you want to call it digital type videos out there. And like you look at it now, you're like, oh, my God, it's like, you know, like from the prehistoric age. But it's just the technology changed and um, music was a lot more accessible than too, because you had MTV and you had the radio. So they were pretty much neck and neck at that time. So there was a lot of exposure to these bands and you had a lot of exposure to different bands because guys like me, you'd watch MTV, you'd sit through. Madonna and Duran Duran and Uh Uh-huh and all these bands just to see like Def Leppard, uh, you know, photograph or Judas Priest, another thing coming. But you're exposed to all this other music. And who among us does not know all these songs now? And it's just it, it changed everything. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the album artwork for this record. I pulled something on the designer and it's the same guy that worked on 
Pyromania. Andy Airfix is his name. And so according to him, he said, it's the same as a typical Def Leppard record. They never gave me any information. The album was originally going to be called Animal Instinct. So he said that he created a sleeve that was around that album concept. He said, originally the idea of having something turn around to look at you. So the illustration had an eagle, a lion, and a shark, which all blended into each other. Then they changed the title to Hysteria. And so he had to totally rework the album artwork. Did anybody ever see the original idea that he had come up with for this uh, record when it was going to be called Animal Instinct, Sonny? I've never seen it. No, me neither. Uh, Steve? No, I haven't seen it either. I've heard about it. I've heard that description before, but I've never seen a picture of it. Huh. So he said the new cover had a distorted face with a triangle almost melting into a complex background, something that owned its genesis, at least in part, to an early version of the Def Leppard logo. They're talking about the triangle. The triangle was a recognizable image for Leopard fans. I guess I don't necessarily remember that being so identifiable back then, but I guess it was. It certainly was on a lot of the records. So, okay. So that seemed a good starting point. Then it was just a case of creating something that was frightening in some respects. The full on face we used is almost human, but the side view isn't retaining the animal aspect. The idea was that this thing turning around to face you made it scarier. What's your thoughts on this album cover, Pooney? Um, I like it. I, to me, what it looks like is a guy like shaking his head vigorously, right? So you get kind of two different views of the same guy screaming two different ways. The one that's on the left almost kind of feels a little bit like about to become a werewolf, right? There's like a line that could be a fang yeah. of a tooth there. Yeah. So, you know, the logo looks cool. The triangle's still there, just like you said. And you got the five pretty boys on the back. So, I mean, it's a, I, I like the cover. I don't think it's better than Pyromania, but uh, it's better than the other two. What about uh, you, Roddy? Yeah, de- I definitely agree with Sonny on on the uh, definitely better than the first two albums. And I kind of like this one, too. And I if you just cover up the, the face on the left and look at that face, it looks like a wolf or like a like a mean dog. And uh, I like it. I, th- I think it's pretty cool. And it kind of you have the uh, like the kind of crosshair type thing that you have on Pyromania, too. So I think that kind of ties them together. I think it's pretty cool. Well, you know what it reminds me of now that we're kind of talking about the distorted face. Sonny mentioned the distorted face and everything. It sort of is reminiscent of and this came after hysteria so and i don't think that it looks anything like it it just reminds me the distorted face thing metallica is hardwired to self-destruct yep it has the crazy distorted face thing going on right it does yep all tracks on the record written by joe elliott rick savage phil collins steve clark and of course mutt lang except we're noted for bonus tracks on reissues we're not going to be talking about any bonus tracks so Let's turn this over to our friend Hollywood to go through track by track on Def Leppard's Hysteria. I remember I remember this one time I was playing and I couldn't get this part right and uh, they were obviously listening to what I'd just done. So I'm like, yo, yo guys. And 
comes back on, uh, I hear him through the, uh, the headphones, and he says something like, you know, Rick, when I want your opinion, I'll ask you for it. So I just, I just took a handful of drumsticks and launched them at the control room window. Fortunately, the drumsticks didn't go through the control room window, but it, it got pretty tense at times. They were long hours, but you'd think nothing of spending two weeks on one verse of a song. I mean, you know, it sounds ridiculous now, but there, there are elements within the songs that, that required that sort of detail. Uh, and that's what Mutt was known for, and it's what we wanted as well. So in, in a sense, back then it was a perfect marriage because Mutt understood what we wanted, but he was probably one of the few people in the world that kind of had the perseverance and the knowledge and just the feel to actually get it. All right, so we got the first track, Women. Righty, if you didn't know it, women have hair, eyes, legs, <laughs> thighs. It was the first single. I can imagine why it bombed, because this is not Photograph. It is not Photograph, but... I really like it as an opening to the album. I, I like the the fade in in the uh, that 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 first riff. It has that epic feel right off the bat. You get the uh, uh, you get the and the guitar goes with that. And right off the bat, you get that this is going to be a, a different, more produced album than you got with Pyromania. And like you said, that that skin on skin, like let the love begin. Absolutely love that. I think it's a fantastic opening to the album, and I have nothing bad to say about this song.
Yeah, I don't mind the song per se because the intro is not that long. I just don't like it that it's the first song and it doesn't punch you in the head. Right, Stephen? Man, I'll tell you what. So they released Women here in the U.S. They released Animal in the U.K. as the first single. Women is the first song I heard off this record, and I was scared for my life, and with good reason. This was not photographed. This was not Rock Rock Till You Drop. This was not Stage Right. This was not anything off of Pyromania. And to me, I didn't dig it, to be honest. I did not love this song as a first single. I did not love this song as the as the album opener. And yeah, Sonny, you know how I feel about opening tracks. I want to be punched in the head by a rock band in the opening track. And this song didn't do it for me. So uh, I was completely very scared of this record when Women is the first song I heard. So then we go from Women, which, you know, this Friday the 13th kind of eerie feel in the music, which is a little weird when you're talking about women. But then you go to Rocket. And I get it. It's an homage to everything they loved listening to, blah, blah, blah. But this song is just too long. And that middle does not work. Righty, I'm assuming you love this song. I absolutely love this song. Um, I figured. This was actually the album that really got me to really love like big production, like this type of stuff where you have all that extra stuff. And um, anything that, if you listen to our podcast, anything with oh's in there or woes, or I absolutely love. And Sonny, I, I want to ask you something. Is Stephen Michael your satellite of love? No, not even close. Are you sure? He really no. seems like he is. And no. actually, there's a uh, – I don't know if you guys saw this. This is the the very first show that I think they played with Vivian Campbell was at the new stadium in Sheffield. And there was a video out for this, and they do rock it, and it's an extended version with Phil Collin doing this long guitar thing. It is absolutely fantastic. Amazing song. I love – so far for me, two epic songs right off the bat. Love it. There's the beginning bit of Rocket, there's this nonsense noise, and it's actually that we're fighting for the gods of war, just turned backwards and flanged. That's all it is.
Yeah, not for me. I like women, the song, oh. and women in general. Well, yeah, just just saying that. I love the pre-chorus to Rocket. But Stephen, if Eclipse released a song with this unnecessary middle and it was this long, we'd be like, what the fuck? We'd be all over Eric saying, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> well, okay. So, <laughs> Rocket. I get the fact that this was written for a stadium. I get the fact that this is sort of an homage throwback to, you know, We Will, We Will Rock You by Queen. They're big Queen fans. And so I sort of, I get that feel out of Rocket. We used to use this song when we were tuning PAs in the instrument store that I used to work at when I first moved to Atlanta because the production on it is amazing. I mean, this thing sounds so good cranked up through a huge PA system. But, <laughs> and this is a big but, like Sonny said, six minutes and 37 seconds long. I think that's way too long. It's a fun song, but again, this is not my Def Leppard. The guitars so far in these first two songs are just, they're buried. They're there. I can hear them, but I don't know, man. It's just they've lost any and all bite that they had. And I know a lot of people say that that bite was gone after High and Dry, which I personally, I don't agree to that. I think Pyromania still had plenty of guitars. Uh, in fact, I thought Pyromania was the perfect marriage between, you know, layered vocals and guitars. So far with this record, with Women and Rocket, I like Rocket better than Women. I think Women is just a very meh song, but Rocket's a little bit at least fun for me. Uh, but man, where are the guitars on this record? So then we go to Animal. And here's the second single. It's released in September of 87. It does better on the Billboard 100. It's well-placed, in my opinion, because finally I'm like, all right, I think I can get into this song. I like this song better than women originally. Today, I actually like women better. But, uh, you know, songs about animal lust, there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, it's a power pop song, right? I love this song. You know what? It's And, and Stephen brought up a really good point about the guitars, like kind of missing on here. I think that when they did this album, they could have went either way. They could have did more guitars or more vocals. They went with more vocals on this. The pre-chorus in this song is just insane. The whole song, I'll tell you what, vocally, I don't know. It's actually hard for me to pick like a favorite song on this album. This is one of those songs that are, it's just fantastic. It's a well-crafted song. And, and Stephen, you are right about the guitars, but the way these songs are arranged and produced I'm, I'm missing them a little bit, but the melodies and the vocals are just just so good that I, I don't miss them as much as as I thought I would.
Yeah, Stephen, this song feels like to me that they were listening to mid-80s heart and they're like, oh my God, that stuff's pretty good. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I think Animal's a well-written song, right? As far as chorus and melody, pre-chorus, all that stuff. It's a well-written song. I have no issues with that. My issues, again, come that basically from track one to two to three, we go further down that rabbit hole and further away from what this band was originally. That's a major problem for me because at this point, they're basically... It might be a little bit too harsh to say they're basically not a rock band anymore because I still think they're a rock band. Okay, so before we go to Love Bites, here's kind of what happened on the charts with this album. So it releases in August of 87. It did not get to number one until mid-July of 88, right coincidingly with the release of Love Bites as a single. It's their only number one hit ever. Phil Collin had said... He played it for his mom. She started crying, so he knew right away they had a hit. And I will tell you, this is the ballad of 87, and there was a lot of ballads in 87. Righty, I know you're not a huge ballad guy, but come on. I am not a huge ballad guy, but this is absolutely fantastic. It's placed perfectly on the album. This is how you do a ballad. There's a lot of, and, and guys, I mean, we all know there's a ton of cheesy, crappy ballads out there. This one is at the top of the pile of the best of the best. Um, this song actually it, it get it gets me personally for some for various for a couple of different reasons, but just a, a fantastically crafted song. Big vocals on the pre-chorus and the chorus. Yeah, I think you get more guitars in this song than you get in the first three. The solo's great, and when they do this live now, this is the one that Vivian Campbell is featured on. So he like stretches this out live at the end. Just epic ballad it is absolutely fantastic i have again nothing bad to say about this song fantastic fantastic ballad
Yeah, Stephen, I know you're not in love with ballads, but from the first four lines, right? When you make love, do you look in a mirror? Who do you think of? Does he look like me? To that wah, 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 that earworm right after the first chorus, to the perfect guitar solo, which we know Vinnie or Ingwe would have completely fucked up, to I love my wife, but you know what? Love does live and die and begs and pleads and bleeds and bites. Like, all of that shit's true. So, Stephen, I know you hate ballads, but come on, dude. <laughs> All right, so just uh let me put myself in, in the shoes as a listener back in uh in 87 when this record came out or 88 whatever uh we said. But I go from women, so I'm already appalled <laughs> at this is the first single. I go to Rocket, then I go to Animal, we keep slowing it down a little bit. Then I get to Love Bites, which essentially is the first really real ballad that Def Leppard is releasing. I mean, yeah, you can look at bringing on the heartbreak or you can look at, you know, full in or something like that. But to me, those aren't really necessarily real ballads. So this is a real ballad. So at this point, I'm looking for the sword to commit Harry Carey. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. Holy crap. Now we're doing an actual ballad on the record. When I first listened to Love Bite, I'm waiting for the song to kick in and it never really kicks in, right? It's it, This is a true ballad. Is it a good ballad? Yes, it's a well-written ballad. Yes, I get all of that, but I hate it as a rock fan. I mean, I'm hating it. You know, so the history on this song a little bit, this was a song that Mutt Lang had written in a country style. Uh, and I think this is actually before he and Shania Twain were even married and before all the Shania Twain stuff that all happened in the nineties, I believe, but he wrote this in a country style and that's how he presented it to the band. Now they took it and uh, Def Leppard it up and made it what it is today. And I've never heard the original version of this song, but that's what I read is that originally it was sort of a country ballad. Yeah. You know, okay. It's a good ballad, I guess it is placed well in the record. I will say that just like uh, Steve Wright said. Yeah. All right. So next we go to pour some sugar on me. Right. And this is the song that basically saved the album because it was headed for disaster. It stalled at three million. You won't believe what's happening in the album. Pour Some Sugar On Me started getting all this traction. I heard from strip clubs in Florida and spread west like wildfire all across the country. You know, when you hear reports from places like Canada where they say that the birth rate spiked, when that record came out. When you see um, statistics like that, it's like, it's like, well, you know, people, people must have been moved by, you know, by, by the music. It must, have, it must have done something. I never thought that we were a, a sexy band, but I think we have some sexy songs. That's the way I look at it. But we never went bald, so that doesn't hurt, you know? <laughs> it just goes to show you, you don't need three years to write a song. Two weeks can do it, you get some pyromania to it, and righty to this day, some woman is dancing to this song. It's sexy as hell. Oh, right now there's someone definitely dancing to this song. And I don't think there are very few people that aren't burned out on this song. 
but you know what? It is just listen to it with fresh ears. Just you can't pretend you've never heard it before. This song is absolutely fantastic. You know, this is the one that one of the songs I think that got the girls and the guys together on this stuff. I mean, I'm hot, sticky, sweet from my head to my feet. I mean, I, that's just freaking gold. I mean, I was uh, 19 years old when this came out, and this was fantastic. Uh, like I said, me and my girlfriend, we burned out like three of these tapes just listening to this over and over again, and absolutely fantastic. Step inside, walk this way, you and me, babe. So, Stephen, here's where waiting helps, because supposedly Elliot was trying to write their version of Walk This Way, but he does realize he's not rapping, right? Yeah, I mean, they would claim that this is uh, the first Def Leppard uh, rap song, and I kind of get that, and I kind of see it. But look, this is the song that saved Def Leppard's career. Many, the many, the many strip clubs made this song a huge success. And God love them for it. This is the one song that I identified with early out of the gates on this album. This is one that drew me in. I liked it because at least I could hear the guitar on the power chords after the vocals. And, you know, at least this was a fun song. This had sex. This had guitars. This had this is my my Def Leppard. Although it was a little bit different, it was still rocking enough for me and it was with the strip clubs and all that other stuff man this was this was a great song and yeah it's a little bit uh fatigued at this point but you can't deny this song is is fantastic so next to inside one we get armageddon and this was a sixth single this is a single that came after love bites and honestly is riding his coattails because it gets all the way to number three righty this is it's very possible this is the worst number three song ever. <laughs> uh, I, I, I got nothing for that. Um, I, I like it. Uh, this is actually my wife's favorite Def Leppard song, which is, which, you know, I you figured that the, the females would like the battles, but she absolutely loves this song. And I can see that people will be burnt out on this one too, but you can't deny it. I think it's awesome. Just a fun song. You know, you got it like that. It just has a good groove to it. More, you know, amazing background vocals. And, um, he mentions my name. He tells me, come on, get it. Steve, come on, get it. So uh, 
how could I not like it? <laughs> when somebody mentions oh that song is cheesy i'm like dude listen to armageddon and then let me know what you think it's the second best song on side one of this that's not saying much (laughs) women rocket animal love bites pour some sugar on me awesome armageddon it awesome plus it's a play on words plus he says hey steve come on and get it and that's my name so already i feel connection with def leppard I like it. It's catchy. It's hooky. It's a good song. And it's less fatigued than all the rest of them. So we flip the record over to side two. And the first song we get is Gods of War. Now, I told you guys I've been listening to this album for the last two, three weeks nonstop. And Righty, every time it gets to Gods of War, I'm like, I really used to love this album. Why? Because I really don't need politics from Def Leppard. I sure the hell don't need to hear Reagan at the end. Like, there's just a lot of shit on this song. It's too goddamn long. Um, no, it's not. Oh my god, dude! I love. I fucking love this song. I love the effects. Like I said, I I just I'm hooked on the production of this album. I think it's it's well put together. The drum and bass groove at the beginning is just fantastic. You get that don't know that that the guitars chugging. It's another excellent pre-chorus for them. 
when they do the pre-chorus of the first one, you don't get the chorus right after it goes right back to the right back to the vocals. I think it's fantastic. I, I love the you know on the countdown to zero, lots of cool effects. Um, I I don't mind the Reagan stuff in there. I like the you know he counted on America to be passive. He counted wrong. Absolutely epic song. Steven, I just can't agree because the first minute's a complete waste. Are you I get in a hurry? To, uh, it's just a complete waste. Yes, I am in a hurry. I got something to do and fucking wasting my time with Gods of War. Oh, I get it. It's supposed to be a mature song, but Steven, like, come on. You can't possibly like this song. This is their diehard, The Hunter, on this record, right? Uh, not just because of the war sounds, but, you know, it's this is an epic tune, right? This is the... Uh, the second longest song on the record, I mean, it's tied with Rocket at six minutes and 37 seconds. I do actually not mind this song. I like the melody. I like the hook. I like the chorus. It's not a bad song for me. 
I don't disagree with you in that it's a little bit long, but yeah, it's not that bad. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, they have this uh, short, like uh, 35, 40 minute episode of, uh, I think it's called Making the Album or something like that. And they go through hysteria and they isolate uh, some of the tracks for the vocals. And it's amazing to listen to some of these uh, vocals on like God's War and Armageddon it, where they just isolate the vocals, the background vocals uh, and the different layers and stacks that they have on them. It's, it's pretty cool to hear, but yeah, I like this song. Sonny counted wrong. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to don't shoot shotgun. <sighs> it's, <laughs> When, when I get to this song, I'm like, are these the same guys that wrote Pour Some Sugar On Me, Photograph, even Women? Like, I like that song, Animal. Righty, I know you're going to say you love it, but this runs like I, I just, if I never hear this song again, I'm good. I like it. I don't love it. I do like the uh, the, the pace of it once the verse gets going. It's uh, a decent arrangement on it. The the tempos are up and down, which is pretty cool. It's It's one of them. It's... It's okay. It's not exactly a skipper for me, but it's it's definitely not a, a favor on the on the album. It's it's a catchy one. It's one that you know you hear it and you're like, okay, it's over with. You know, give me the next song. It's it's like like BC says, if it's on, it's on. They're trying to do ACDC here, but guess what? They ain't ACDC. I like them trying to do ACDC more than I like them trying to do the Thompson twins or Duran Duran. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least they're a rock band trying to do a rock band. So here's where we're going to differ in our opinions, much like with Pyromania, where there's a lot of songs on the record that are fatigued for me, and it's not that they're bad songs. It's just major fatigue. So I find songs that are less played more enticing to me. 
side two is a lot like that for me with hysteria. So don't shoot shotgun is another song that I don't mind. I actually like it. I dig this tune. At least I can hear a guitar and at least, uh, at least it's rocking. So then we get to run riot, uh, righty. I'm just going to tell you what Phil Collins said. <laughs> we never really finished that song off. I think we could have made a better song out of it, but I think the chorus could have been a lot harder. The chorus is in a major key, and in hindsight, it would have been cool if we experimented with something a little edgier. It is what it is. This is really the weakest song on the album. Phil was almost right. It's one of them. It's not the. I kind of agree with that. It's it's probably the heaviest sounding song on the album. It, it's you know it's got a, a you know faster pace to it. it. It's okay, kind of filler for me. If if there was a song to cut off the album. This may be one of them. The solo is really good. You finally get a, a really good solo. I just wish that it was on a different song. It's okay at best. If, if there's a skipper on this album, this would be the one for me. Stephen, I've had this album since 1987. Told you I got several copies. 
And when I first started listening to the full thing about three weeks ago, I could not remember one single note of Run Riot. That's how forgettable it is. <laughs> Phil Collins' issue with Run Riot is really centered around the course, mostly the course. It's not a bad song. There's some good uh, melodies in there. There's some good hooks. Like Steve said, it's one of the heavier songs on the record. But he didn't like uh, the fact that the the course kind of just, uh, for lack of a better word, wimped it out a little bit more. With a song title like Run Riot, it should be a heavy song, right? I like this song. Again, it's another one of those songs for me that is less fatigued and more on the rock side of things versus the pop side of things for Def Leppard. Still layered vocals still has a pop sensibility about it but more of a rock song and that's what i'm looking for from a band like def leppard so yeah i get it and i understand why people call it a filler song and stuff like that but i like the tune so there you go so then next we get to hysteria so hysteria was the third single so kind of follow me here women gets released it tops off at like around 80 Animal gets released, it tops off at 19. Hysteria gets released, it tops off at 10. Portion of Sugar on Me gets to 2, but Hold On to the Night stops it. And then Love Bites gets to number 1. So this is kind of the middle of the build here. And I think this is where women started connecting to, hey, this stuff is stuff we're going to listen to the rest of our lives. Because this honestly is right in Joe Elliott's bang zone. And for the title, it kind of feels like it's going to be a hard song, but it actually comes off as this very pleasant song right righty yeah and uh i'm just gonna preface this by saying this is my absolute favorite def leppard song of all time which for me for a, a ballad to be my favorite song from a band is just like i i can't even believe that the words actually come out of my mouth but i have and sonny i know we did this song we did our, our one ballads episode and i have what i call like an ah song like it kind of catches my breath different melodies and stuff like that this is one of them okay i'm gonna stop you right there because i'm <laughs> Sonny, I'm going to call this like I see it, because I just heard Steve Wright say that Hysteria is his favorite, not ballad, not Def Leppard ballad, but his favorite Def Leppard song of all time. So I'm going to call this exactly like I see it. Steve got his first blowjob or got laid for the first time to this song. Guaranteed. You could not be more wrong. I was 19 <laughs> years old when this came out. And? <laughs> and? This is Steve's first blowjob till he was 28. This is Steve Wright, not Steve Michael. All right. <laughs> there is no way in freaking hell that you are going to tell me that this song is your favorite Def Leppard song of all time. Now, I'm going to give you a chance to back up. It is. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm sorry for interrupting. Proceed. All right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I do. I, I love the uh, musically. It's 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 very melodic. It's, it's unusual for this album with the way the pre-choruses have been going for it to be sung just by Joe Elliott. Usually it's the band and then he joins in with with them as well. And then they do the chorus. But he only he sings the, the pre-chorus by himself. And it's an unusual thing for the title track to be so deep in the album as well. Just the intense. uh very cool, intense part right before the solo is good. The solo is melodic. 
Um, the guitars underneath the solo are really good. And then it goes right back to the pre-chorus. Just an amazing song. And I like how it, it fades out. You get that closer to me. And they, it's kind of a call and response between the band and Joe Elliott. This is one of the few songs that I don't even mind it fading out because it, it kind of it, it lends itself to, to fading out as well. Absolutely fantastic song. Even all three of us have been in the room when recording is happening of a certain song. I could not imagine somebody telling Tony, we're going to record each of your guitar strings separately. Or somebody telling a singer they're going to EQ your vocal by the syllable. But this is how this album was recorded. That's ridiculous. Crazy. <laughs> there, there were so many probably first on this record in terms of recording that it's unbelievable. I mean, we've just we've read a few different things. There were probably five times more things that we don't know about that were in this. At one point in time, I think uh, uh, there's a story. Well, hell, there's a story about Joe Elliott sitting in a corner crying. I'm just going to play that right here. You can hear the story from Rick Savage himself the memory of making the album is just one of no sleep it, 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 we just seem to be spending our whole lives in the studio i just remember walking in um while matt and joe were working together and joe was sitting in the corner crying and and i just kind of i was hoping nobody had nobody had seen me you know walk into the room 
So I just kind of, you know, I just crept back out the room. I'm like, there's no way I want to be in there. This is way too, this is way too much for me. I tried to figure out whether hysteria or love bites, which one of the two ballads I preferred more because they're both, they're both similar in the fact that they're both straight up ballads, right? They're not, they don't ever really kick in. They're just two flat out ballads. I think I actually prefer hysteria more than love bites for whatever reason. There's nothing I can really zone in on. I just feel like I pr prefer it more as a song to love bites, but look, another ballad. So yeah, chicks were flocking to the band at this point in, uh, in droves. Uh, because it was the time. So then we're nearing the end of the album and we get to Excitable. And because this album took so damn long, they decide they're going to do a dance hit. And some fucking dumbass picks State of Shock to replicate and did it worse. Righty, this is unbelievably bad. Yeah, um, it's not good. There's a couple parts I, I, I like and I like the whoa, woes, but... And, and it's funny that Stephen was talking or you were talking, I'm sorry, about the the production on, you know, recording each string and syllables. There is a lot of production on this song. There is so much going on on this song. It's easy to, like, hate it because there's just like too much going on in it to, to really pay attention to the song. And plus, by now, the it, it's a long album, especially for 1987. So I'm like, I could, you know, live without this one, like move on. Uh, absolutely for this one. Are you excitable? 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 Are you Stephen, I'm convinced that if Excitable opened the record and you heard Stand Up, 
say yeah, then it goes right out the window before you even hear the second song. <laughs> this is probably my favorite song on the record. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I don't hate this song like you guys do. I accept it for what it is. I think if uh, memory serves me correctly, the little intro thing that they have to excitable, uh, you know, that are you excitable? Are you ex I think that opened up the show before they launch into uh, stage fright. So I think that that they played that through the PA while the uh, the curtains were up. And then uh, when they launch into stage fright, they yanked the curtains down, the kabuki curtains on the stage. Uh, if memory serves me correctly, I think that's uh, how that worked out. But look, excitable. It is what it is. It's it's not offensive to me uh, and it's less fatigue than a lot of the other stuff. And it's not a ballad. So I don't hate it. Uh, is it my favorite on the on the record? Nah, probably not. But you got to admit, there's some catchy stuff to that. Stand up, you know. There's there's some catchy stuff to that stuff. It does have some woes in there, which exactly you know that saves a little bit for me. But it, it, I mean, it's not a. I don't hate it, but so we get to the end of the album with love and affection, and righty, this is basically hysteria and animal in a blender. It is, but I I look at it this way. I really wish that they saved this song because I think if this song is on a, on another Def Leppard album, it could have been a really big hit. I think it's a really good song. If, if they save this and put this on Adrenalize, I think it, you you might. I mean, you're not going to hit anything like uh, you know Love Bites or Pour Some Sugar on Me, but I think they could have really did well with this song. And uh, it's very melodic. The chug is very cool during the verse. There's some really cool arrangements in there. The chorus is great. Uh, the Clean guitar sounds are really good. I, I think this is a sleeper track on the album. Uh, it's got an insanely melodic solo in it. Um, ends fantastic. I think it's really an amazing end to an absolute amazing album. I, I really like this one. I, I this is, but it was a forgettable song because by the time you get, I get the hysteria. I'm usually checked out after that song. But listen to the album again, getting ready for this podcast. I'm like, wow, this is a really good song. I wish it was like where uh, Don't Shoot Shotgun or Run Riot was, or just knock them two out and put that one up there, I think it would have been fantastic.
Yeah, and Steven, I was saying hysteria and animal in a blender. That makes it okay to me. I guess it could have been worse. You could have done don't shoot shotgun and run riot in a blender and it'd be a lot worse. Well, Joe Elliott said this was going to be the eighth single uh, released. I think it's a great written song. I think if they would have released it as a single, I think it would have done probably about as well as Animal. Uh, because I think, to your point, Sonny, I think it is sort of a combination of of animal. It's it has that flavor and feel to it. Uh, it's just a well written song. I mean, I I like love and affection uh, because it is a well written song and because it is less fatigued than a lot of the rest of the record. So uh, I don't mind love and affection at all. So that brings us to the end of the album. Before we get to our top two, bottom two. I don't normally say an album hasn't aged well for me. This is my first example of the album has not aged well. Like there's six songs on here that I go to a lot. The other six, I may never listen to again. And righty, I know you love this album, but I, after listening to it the last two or three weeks, I'm just like, it's just too polished. I like polish. This thing's just too polished. So give me your top two, bottom two. Righty. All right. Top two. Hysteria, definitely my my top song, and uh, absolutely love it. I'm going to go uh, number two top song, Animal. Absolutely love it. I love the melodies in that song. And that's another song for me that I, I can't not see the video when I hear the song. Very good. I love it. And my bottom two, I got a tie for the bottom. There's three of them. Don't Shoot Shotgun, Run Riot, and Excitable. Those those three, I could I, if they knocked them off and it was a, like a nine-song album, I would be I would be very happy. Like if I if I was to just put this on a on a thing, I would I would put every song on on a playlist with the exception of those three. Steve at my top two, pour some sugar on me, love bites. My bottom two, and I could have done a bottom six, but my bottom two are Rocket and Gods of War. Good lord. Between the two of them, it's almost thirteen and a half minutes. Thanks. Of perfection. How about you? Good lord. <laughs> wow, you you would rather a song like Excitable than Rocket and Gods of War, huh? Yes. Wow. Okay. It's only wow. four minutes. <laughs> All right. My top two, pour some sugar on me and love and affection. My least two favorites. I'm going to go with, I, it would be easy for me to say love bites and hysteria uh, because that's the easy way out for me. I could do without the ballads, but I'll I'll be more honest and say, my least two favorites are Love Bites and Excitable. Yeah, I'll go with that. I mean, look, you guys know we've talked a lot about this record being 62 minutes long. The reasoning for that we haven't really talked about, which it's been noted numerous times with the changing of technology and CDs were on the end at this point. Mutt Lang knew that was going to be something that stuck around for a long time. He was right. So he pushed the ban for more material, more content. He's the one that pushed them to the 62 minutes because uh, they didn't have that much material for this record originally. You guys know that story, yeah? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's the reason, but uh, I'm with everybody else. I don't need a 62-minute album. I don't care whether it fits on a CD or not. Uh, and I didn't need it back then, and I sure as hell don't need it now. Uh, so that's the way we feel about that. All right. So let's connect it to Kiss. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss. Yeah. 
It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So for the historic moment, as Def Leppard is releasing their second Diamond album, Beatles-type women are screaming everywhere all across the country. Kiss is trying to recover still from the early 80s and isn't entrenched in what we sometimes describe as fast Kiss. Kiss is chasing every guitar god that's out there. They're chasing Bon Jovi's success. So they're trying to write some radio-friendly songs. They aren't as big as the 70s heyday, but they're doing fine because they're coming back. Crazy Nights gets released in September of 87. Album tops out at 18, launches three singles. Crazy Crazy Nights goes to 65. Reason to Live went to 64. They released Turn On The Night. It didn't chart for some reason. We've heard original versions of these songs many, many times, so let's go with the cover. So here is Phil Proietti on vocals and guitar. You got Gabrielle Connor on bass, and they got special guest Bruce Kulick to help them with the guitar and guitar solo. Here's their version of Turn On The Night.
yeah, so it seems like it's pretty true to the original, at least to my ears anyway. This was one of the songs where, because I used to hate the record Crazy Crazy Nights. I thought it was an awful record, but this is one of the songs that made me go back and give that record a listen again. Uh, and there's some okay material on that record. This is one of them, so uh, not a bad version. Yeah, right. It's hard to pull off Paul. Yeah, it is. Vocally, it's, uh, you know, especially for how Paul was singing back then. It's 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 a decent version, though. The guitars are good. And it is different hearing it without that polished production on it and without, like, all the, the you know, in-your-face keyboards in there. Pretty good version. I, I like the solo. I think it's, it's a solid version. Yeah, so overall, Hysteria, like I said, to me, I get it. It's one of the diamond albums of all time, blah, 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 blah. Half of it I'll never listen to again. Yeah, for me personally, it's, uh, you know, I've gone on record in saying this record was an overrated record to me. Uh, We did an episode, and this was one of my selections for overrated records. It just is okay to me. I mean, there's some stuff that I think is catchy. Uh, I think from a pop perspective, there's definitely some groundbreaking recording stuff going on. And given all the crazy like challenges and hoops that the band had to jump through, it's amazing this album came out. And it's even more amazing to me that it's it's not diamond certified, but it's double diamond certified. I mean, that's just nuts to me. So they cemented their legacy with this record because it could have gone either way at the time Women was released. And, uh, you know, I like half the songs on this record probably, and the other half I can do without. And for me, I love this album. I, I'm sure you've got that feeling from uh, my talking about it and stuff. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the time in my life when it came out. Mm-hmm. I was a year out of high school, had a steady girlfriend. We were partying all the time, listening to this all the time. you know. And there's you know certain songs that bring back certain memories and stuff like that. And I think that has a real lot to do with it. And it's one of those typical, uh, you know, late 80s albums that we talked about it, stuffing as many songs on an album as you can, where this is another album, in my opinion, that you could have knocked off maybe two songs and it would be absolutely perfect. But it still ends up being a Desert Island album for me. Absolutely love it. Well, to me, I wonder how I would have felt had they pulled a couple of songs off this record and replaced it with songs like Fractured Love and Desert Song that were written in fact fractured love was the first song they wrote for hysteria and it didn't make the album and to me that's a song left over from pyromania era it sounds every bit as good as what's on pyromania i love fractured love but it didn't make the album uh it's on uh retroactive so you can hear it there but it's just a rock and tune and it would have added a little bit of balls to this record. Desert Song, I don't love it, but at least it's a rocker. Uh, so it might have added a little bit of balls to this record as well. But it's overall, for me, it's the production where there's so many great things about the production. There's also a few bad things. And if we're saying that it's over-polished, like Sonny said, it's just too polished for him. If part of the definition of polished is that the guitars have been thinned out and, you know, 
pussified, whatever you want to call it, but buried in the mix, then yes, it's too polished for me. But I don't mind like the vocals and the layers and things like that. I think it's fantastic. I think it sounds sonically great, including the drums, but it's just, I don't know, man. There's no bite, guitar bite for me on this record, hardly. I think if they put those songs on there, uh, I think you would have got the same production. I think it would have, you know, neutered those songs as well. So I'm glad that they held them back and then put them on retroactive because you would have had the same production that you have on, on the rest of the album. Yeah. All right. So the end of the story is the end of the record. And that's, uh, that is hysteria in the books. There's way more information that's available for this record than we even scratch the surface on. I mean, I'm sure somebody's probably written a book about this record, but if not, there's tons of YouTube videos and interviews out there. And we've played a lot of snippets within this podcast uh, regarding this record. It's just, I mean, it can't be be denied how huge of a record this was you know, huge doesn't necessarily mean great. Uh, so do with that what you will. But as always, we enjoy doing these record reviews. It's Def Leppard all year long. We're going through each one of the studio albums and giving our thoughts and uh, opinions on it. And uh, it's been fun, as always, catching up with you, Steve. Uh, go ahead and plug your podcast. Yeah, check us out, Potter Than Hell Podcast. We have new episodes every Friday at noon, and we're on pretty much all the same platforms that Stephen and Sonny are on. And thanks for the invite, guys, and it's always great talking with you. Sonny, you have anything else you want to add? I can't wait to make love like a man. <laughs> on the next episode. <laughs> Finally? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it still hasn't happened, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he can't wait. I don't know. He's got kids, so it must have happened. Although, you know, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> let's get out of here before we get ourselves in trouble. Next up will be Adrenalized, and Sonny can finally make love like a man. Until then, we're out of here. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Uh, well, that charity move, uh, yes, I did bone you, and uh, that is correct. But oh, the- that's getting clipped. <laughs> oh, my God. That's making returns sometimes. Oh, my God. You're welcome. I hate, I hate it. <laughs> I just gave you a sound bite. I gotta, I gotta totally get rid of that. Hopefully, you weren't recording that on your side. <laughs> it's down. Oh, anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's let's get back to this episode and quit talking Good start. about that. Good start. <laughs> Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word. G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K dot com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.